namo tassa bhagavato arahato <coughs> samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa so I have had uh, some impressively uh, impactful cold for the last week or so, so my apologies for not being around for these uh, readings. Uh, but and, and then we have the uh, uh, open retreat schedule beginning the day after tomorrow so uh, there's only a couple of days now for readings but I thought I would include this so for today and tomorrow at least and um, and continue to offer these uh, themes for reflection so th- again this is Lumpur Sumato's book don't take your life personally and this is the talk called don't be afraid of trusting yourself and this was given on the 6th of August, 2002. We started it previously, so this is continuing. During this summer school, then, I encourage you to really listen inwardly. If you are unhappy, full of doubts, low, bored, or maybe feeling elated, rather than trying to suppress it, or just endlessly tell people about it, listen to it. I'm bored, I'm bored. You can then begin to get in touch with boredom. You can accept it, in a way. It's not a matter of trying to figure out why you are bored, or blaming it on somebody else. I'm bored because of him. I'm bored because of the summer school. To it, to understand boredom, to recognize it. And if somebody says something that offends or upsets you, use that to learn from. When we start analyzing, it gets back into the same problem of why do I get so upset when you do that? We might think about it and try to figure it out. And it's interesting sometimes to do that. But it doesn't solve the problem. At least, not until we learn how to recognize that being upset is like this. Feeling lonely is like this. But that which is aware, is that lonely? Is awareness lonely? Or is the object of awareness lonely? Investigate that relationship. So this is a crucial piece of of, uh, the practice. That which knows loneliness is not lonely, I would suggest. And that uh, when this is investigated, again, the the encouragement is for each one of us to explore these things individually rather than just take these things on trust. But... uh, this is, say, the <coughs> what would Lumpur Sumedha would call the escape hatch. This is the, the thing that makes a difference, is that which knows agitation is not agitated. That which knows, knows loneliness is not lonely. That which knows boredom is not bored. And so that the, uh, the issue is uh, getting to know that sense of, of uh, the mind's attachment to a mood, like um, 
I'm angry or I'm upset or I'm bored or I'm lonely or I'm excited. Um, yeah, and that uh, the the uh, habit of mind is to absorb into the content. That's that's what most of the world revolves: excited, being interested, being frightened, being irritated, uh, being a uh, being busy, and uh, and so that the the gesture of letting go of the content to look at the process of of experiencing itself. That's the, the thing that makes the, such a huge difference. And it takes a bit of attention to, to say, really be aware of this. The, if, say, if the emotion is quite strong, a feeling of, of loneliness or disappointment, a feeling of uh, sadness or loss, grief, it might be very, very strong. Like this uh, family that uh, came today, uh, the um, 13 and a half year old uh, son, grandson of their family, um, he was given permission to go out riding on a motorbike, visiting the the, the family home in one of the uh, property in, in Sri Lanka was given permission to ride out on a motorbike, rode out, rode out on a motorbike, had a crash and died. That's why he's, uh, the family come and remember him every year. So that's a, a, a huge grief for, the, for the, uh, the family, the parents, the, particularly the one who gave him permission to get on the motorbike and ride it at the age of 13 and a half. So that's a huge sadness, a huge pain there. But if we really practice with it, without shutting that feeling down, there can be that knowing of, yeah, here is grief, and it has a real basis. Yes, this has a, a, a purpose and a, an origin, but that which knows grief is not grieving. That which is, is aware of that is knowing that feeling. It's not pushing it away. It's not identifying with it. It's not claiming ownership of it. It's present, but it's not identified with that. It knows it feels it, but it doesn't create anything around it. So that's the, the escape hatch, that's the, uh, the, the way out of suffering, is this sense of, of uh, apprehending or understanding, receiving the dukkha, but not adding anything to it, just letting it be known fully and completely as it is. So then the heart attunes to that, to what it is, how it feels, and where it's come from. It's not hiding away from that or pretending it's not there, but it's also recognizing, yeah, this is this is part of the natural order. It feels this way. This is its quality. This is its, its tone, its texture. It's, it's like this. So you're not saying that it's, the ugly is beautiful, but it's recognizing you know, that this is, uh, this is what is present. This is what's being felt, being known here in this moment. And that the, the ref, as long as the refuge is the awareness, that quality of knowing, then the, uh, the object... Awareness, whether it's a, a sad feeling or painful emotion like grief, or something like excitement. You, know, you see something that you you love, or you're, you're tasting your favorite dish. Like, wow, this is so good. And the mind that says, "This is the this is so good" feeling. It's, the taste is still there, but it, the mind is not confused by that. There's a, a story um, that I. I uh, and it's a long, long time ago, but uh, I believe I heard from Lumpur Ch- Cha that comes out of the, the commentaries. You don't find it in the suttas, but it's in one of the commentarial um, <coughs> pieces, so I understand, is where the, um, the, the Buddha and uh, Ananda and, the, and a group of monks have been invited to some, uh, uh, say, a meal offering at the, at the palace. And there's this very, very lavish kind of banquet of food that's kind of being offered to them. And Ananda makes uh, some comment like, uh, 
Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's wonderful. It's marvelous how the Tathagata, even though there's all this this uh, delicious food that's being offered to us, then it uh, it's uh, as if you know he was uh, there was no kind of um, uh, no kind of flavor there at all. That he's the Tathagata, the, the, the Buddha is so detached or so uh, restrained that um, it's as if the the food had no flavor at all. Something like that. Uh, I've never been able to track down the actual passage on paper, but it, uh, I, it was um, it's like one of those received stories that you think, where did that come from? But the story is there. So then the Buddha says, of course, not so, Ananda, not so. You know, that uh, It's not that the Buddha does not have uh, the, the, the experience of taste. It, in fact, the, the, uh, the sense of taste of the Tathagata is extremely acute. But rather, his mind is not attached to it. And then, according to the story, then the Buddha took some food out of his bowl and said, Here, Ananda, eat this, and you will taste things as the Tathagata. Taste them. So then Ananda takes this piece of food and puts it in his mouth, and there's this kind of explosion of, of that kind of cosmic uh, magnitude flavors, like kapow. And he's never had any ex- sort of taste experience like that in his whole life. And it's like, wow, it's incredible, amazing. Isn't it? And then the Buddha says, yeah, "Even so, Ananda, yeah, this is what this is how the Tathagata experiences uh, tasting even ordinary food, and so how much more so when it's something uh, that's sort of delicious and special like this. But however, whether it's it's plain food or or uh, soup uh, or rich food, even so, the Tathagata is completely uh, economous uh, uh, in the um, in the presence of even such extraordinarily refined and powerful tastes." So, if anyone ever tracks down that particular passage or finds it in some sort of commentary or sub-commentary or sub-sub-commentary, then let me know. But, uh, I haven't managed to, to track it down as yet. But I heard it from somewhere, and I believe it was Lumpur Cha telling the story. And he was quite well known for um, sometimes getting his references mixed up and, and uh, melded together. But um, that was a, a story that I heard, I believe, from him, so that uh, but saying that non-attachment is not a matter of flattening the senses or not having any emotion. It's not like you know, all food just tastes like wet cardboard. <coughs> but rather, the mind can know that experience and not be, uh, not be lost in it, not be kind of entangled or confused by that. So it, in a way, can it experience it more fully and, and completely. Fear is another important aspect of our lives to contemplate, isn't it? It's a basic human emotion. This realm that we live in is a realm of fear. We can create institutions to give us a sense of security. But the animal world is all about survival. It's the law of the jungle, where we look after ourselves, where we learn the tricks of survival. It's a frightening realm to be born into, but... That is just the way it is. We can think how it should be. The lion and the lamb should lie down together and love each other. But that is an ideal realm. We can create an an image and an ideal. But this realm is not actually like that. Lambs and lions don't do that. Nor are they supposed to. So it isn't their fault either. We are recognizing the way it is on the level of just raw conditioning where we have to survive have to give birth, procreate, raise families, eat, protect our things. All these are part of this human realm that we're experiencing. There's a lot of fear in it, in terms of pain and loss. That is the way the realm of fear is. 
Here in Britain, we have a sense of security. As much as people complain, this is a fairly well-run country. So, nothing much has changed there. People are still complaining. <laughs> but it's still fairly well-run, I would say. You can take a lot for granted living here, but you can't in other countries. Then little things can jar. You want it to be perfect. You want it to be how it should be if it were a really well-run country and all the people were doing what they should do. You would like that, but that's not the way it is. Noticing the way it is isn't excusing it or apologizing. It's just recognizing that this realm and this physical body are the way they are at this moment. Whether you feel healthy and strong, weak and sickly or whatever, it's not the point, is it? The point is to willingly accept the way it is, to recognize it. Even if it's not the way you want it to be, rather than being caught up in an abusing society or your body, sorry, rather than, rather than being caught up in abusing society or your body or the world you're living in because you feel threatened and persecuted by them. Now that which is awake and aware can be aware of your body, but your body cannot be aware of you. You can recognize just by the body sweeping practice, just by sweeping through the sensations in the body, that you can be aware of the body as an experience right now. As you sit here, you can be aware of the posture of sitting, of the pressure of sitting, of the heat and cold in all sensations. That which is aware, quote-unquote, can include the whole body in this moment. It isn't like thinking. When you think and analyze, you have one thought at a time. You have to think this one thought, then the next one, then the next one. And you can't think two thoughts at the same moment. Also, when you're attached to thinking, you're caught up in this time realm. Thinking is quite a gift, actually, but your thoughts, thoughts can easily delude you because they are limited. They are linear and dualistic. Nevertheless, you can be aware of thinking, and you can de deliberately think, I am not good enough the way I am, or whatever. So what is it that's aware of thinking? Keep asking yourself, what is it that is aware of thinking? What is it that is aware of feeling? What is it that is aware of sadness, anger, lust, despair, or anything? What is it that is aware? It isn't a matter of coming up with some smart aleck answer, but of just trusting yourself to keep that kind of question floating in your consciousness so that you can begin to feel that the connection, begin to get the sense of being this awareness, this pure subjectivity, where the physical body is an object, no longer the subject, where you are no longer operating from the assumption that I am this physical body or I am this personality, where you are actually in the space that contains all of this. So that uh, sense of uh, fear and danger that um, is a, um, rather than thinking of that as some sort of neurotic problem that you feel, say, um, uh, you're anxious about, uh, about life or that you, are, um, you want to have uh, a life without fear, one of the important insights is even though when fear is, is attached to and identified with, it can be uh, like a, an oppressive and, and stressful uh, quality, it's not 
fear that's the, the, uh, the problem in itself. Fear has its place in nature. That Our ancestors who were not afraid are the ones that fell off the cliffs or got eaten by that. The, the noise in the bushes was actually a saber-toothed tiger and they got eaten by it. So that the ones who weren't afraid didn't make it. So that we've, we experience fear because of the ancestors that, that were afraid. So the, uh, the important thing to, to, uh, with respect to this is even though fear is uncomfortable and unpleasant, that's how it works. If fear wasn't, wasn't, un wasn't unpleasant, then the closer to the edge of the cliff you got, the happier you would be. You know, the more the kind of the growling in the bushes, yeah, they, oh great, that's nice. I've got, I've got a friend here, oh, big teeth, you know, what big teeth you have. And you, you, you wouldn't run away, you just sort of sit there, hello, what's your name? <laughs> Yeah, and then, you know, up comes your head and your <coughs> tiger lunch. So fear works by being unpleasant. That, that's, that's its nature. So it's uh, to, to not want it around. Think, oh, wouldn't it be nice not to, be, not to have any fear? Is a, is a, uh, a foolish perception. It, uh, it's only when fear overspills its boundaries then, then it becomes a problem where we become... Yeah, absorbed in that feeling of fear or the mind creates fears about everything you become afraid of the carpet or the clock or the book or the, or you know, anybody who you sort of pass by in the sala in the at Amravatiya <gasps> what does he think of me what's he, he's thinking about me what does he, what's he think of me you know? and that the mind then creates uh, suffering around it but uh, fear in itself is a is one of nature's protective devices it, that's, it, it's extremely helpful so that the um, this kind of idealized image, as uh, Lumpur saying, of the lion and the lamb, they don't lie down together. That's not how lions and lambs work. You know, it's like the, the uh, if the lion is hungry, the lamb is on the menu, and uh, that that's how uh, you know nature is uh, is uh, operating. And uh, he would often talk about these um, uh, sort of Jehovah's Witness uh, leaflets you get in America, put through your front door, or people would hand you on the street. And you'd have uh, little children sort of picking picking blackberries with a with a with a, a bear, you know, with a huge looming black bear beside them. And they're all sort of picking back blackberries at the same bush, and it's like, no, you know, the bear would be eating the child. But in the sort of Jehovah's Witness paradise, no, they're all kind of eating, you know picking blackberries off the same bush and all living happily together. Uh, but uh, so Lumpur would often use that as an illustration. It's like, yeah. That's an idealized realm. It's a sort of children's heaven, the kind of picture book paradise, and the lion lies down together with the lamb. But the you know, the the cat world is a world of carnivores. Like you don't have vegetarian cats, not at least <coughs> not not anywhere um, in in nature. You know the cats are they're, they're carnivores. That's that's the way cats are, small and large, and so that to um, to expect the cat to, to, to not be that way is, is kind of not acknowledging the way that nature operates. You, you, know, you can feel compassionate for the mouse the cat is catching or the lamb that the, the lion is eating. Absolutely. But to, to, think that, you know, to say to the lion, you're breaking the precept, eating that, eating that lamb. It's like, no, it's not. It's, it's a lion. It doesn't, can't take the precepts. It's, not, it's, a, it's an animal. It doesn't have those, those uh, human attributes that can say, yeah, uh, I feel 
compassion for this this animal I'll just stop eating it's like no that that's that's its nature it's part of the the natural order is to be uh, a carnivore I'm not praising that I'm saying that's beautiful and and, and right or there's certainly there's the, the terror of an animal being being eaten or killed uh, killed and eaten by another is is very very great but to uh, to project our idea of how it should be um onto the the natural world like that it's like looking at our mind and thinking every impulse of fear of aversion of lust of jealousy of, of anger and think oh I shouldn't be there that shouldn't be I want a mind with no fear no lust no anger no jealousy all those things uh, they have them wiped out altogether and that uh, creating an ideal of how we think a, a, a peaceful or a clear mind should be but then it's it's disconnected from the way life works and so that if we're actually going to grow up and and to help nature as 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 is embodied in our own lives to fulfill its potential then the, it's through that uh, the application of awareness of being awake to those feelings of uh, of selfishness or anger or jealousy or, or you know, fear aversion and so on to get to know them to understand them and to develop those wise qualities of discernment of what leads towards benefit and and blessing for oneself and others and what leads to harm and confusion and destruction so that that's that development of wisdom that development of compassion and discernment is exactly what helps us to uh, uh, to evolve and uh, but it's not through just sort of wiping out the things that we look upon as as defilements or obstructions but rather through understanding them as uh, Umpo would say that the uh, in the, the development of the first noble truth, parinyanti, uh, they are to be understood, or he say like, he say it's like standing under them, like you you receive receiving them, like standing under a, a rain shower. You know, you're you're allowing it to land on you. So there's that receiving of anger and fear, and jealousy, that sense of righteousness or uh, grief or sadness, whatever it might be, to say. Here it is. It, this is part of nature. This sad feeling, or this angry feeling, or this this uh, <coughs> jealous feeling. This is part of nature. And then, in receiving it, it can be recognised. Yeah, this doesn't have to <coughs> doesn't have to be followed. Doesn't have to be sort of fed and supported. Because if it if it's um, given energy and and is followed, then it'll lead towards harm, and difficulty for this being and other beings. And then those similar emotions are, are kindness and passion of forgiveness generosity and uh, the uh, the kind of um, motivation towards harmlessness and honesty and kindness uh, to recognize oh, if these are followed then this brings benefit to, to this being the other beings that everybody gains in this way and uh, as he said um uh, in this uh, later part of the, the, that particular passage, what is it that's aware? Uh, what is it that is aware of thinking? What is it that's aware of feeling? There's a, you're not looking for an answer, you're not looking for a conceptual answer, but you're asking the question to clarify the quality uh, of awareness itself. So uh, uh, over and over again, when we use this kind of reflective inquiry, so, you know, who is the one who knows or what is it that's aware, you're not looking for a clever conceptual answer. It's awareness that's aware. That's what's aware. Ta-da. Awareness is just a word. 
referring to equality. So that the point of, of um, asking those questions is to they um, illuminate the the habits of thinking, the the attitudes of mind that are there to help the mind to be free of its limitations and to to see and to know more more clearly, and so that you're not you're deliberately not looking for a conceptual answer, but rather you are letting the the that quality of of awareness itself, or of that of, of a, uh, awakened knowing, awakened awareness to to be free of its limitations, and then in that moment of clear seeing, then just to to let that be fully cognized. What when the mind sees clearly, when those projections fall away, how does it feel? What's what's present? What's what's uh, what's here? When that uh, the kind of habits of self view and conceit fall away, when that when that the mind goes oh. <coughs> when the when the uh, that kind of a question of what is it that's aware of thinking or who is it that is aware? So oh, because in that moment the the mind recognizes it's not a who. There's just knowing. There's a, a there's awareness that is that is knowing, and that 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 moment of oh, that's really the the point of the whole thing. Not to create a story about that or write a poem about it, but just let the mind rest in that. In that quality of freshness, of alertness, spaciousness. So, just to continue a little bit, this is my own experience and interpretation of what I call the deathless. I'm aware of what changes, what is death-bound, such as thoughts. Thoughts are born and die incessantly. Thinking moves very quickly, as well as feeling, emotion, states of mind, physical sensations, pleasure, pain, aches, and so on. What is it, then, that is aware of them? What is it that is awake? Just by repeating that question, you are listening to the questioning, as well as learning to trust in the simple act of paying attention. The question helps to encourage this attentiveness. It's not a matter of looking for an answer in the normal way. It is simply questioning in order to develop more confidence in your own receptivity, in your own awakenedness. This awakenedness is natural. It's not a condition you create through meditation practice. It is a natural state of being and sustains itself as you begin to trust in it. That's why I keep uh, reiterating this word, trust. Your thinking mind endlessly creates doubts about it. At least mine used to. I would think, it couldn't be this simple. It takes years for even meditation masters to get enlightened. And it's said to be rare for anyone. You read the scriptural accounts and Dhamma books and think, I don't imagine anyone like me could ever do that. You hear about the miraculous side of it, the great teachers that read minds and levitate. I know I'll never be able to do that. would like to, though. Recognize the limitation, even of the convention we are using, the scriptures and the commentaries and the words of the great teachers. These are often taken out of context anyway. Ajahn Mahabhua wrote a biography about Ajahn Man. It makes him sound like a superman. It's a very inter- entertaining book, and you cannot help but be impressed. But when you talk to disciples of Ajahn Man, they say, 
Oh, that stuff doesn't matter. Just forget it. Anshin Man taught about waking up, being aware. The other stuff is impressive and entertaining and may inspire you, but recognize its limitation and trust in your intuitive sense. What is important? For you to communicate with all the realms in the universe and talk to devas in the heavenly realms? Be connected physically to the arahants in the Himalayas? Or be awake and aware in this moment, in this mundane, sitting, standing, walking, lying down moment, where you are washing the dishes or vacuuming the carpet? When I reflect in this way, I recognize that awareness is more important than trying to make myself into an extraordinary super magician. I realize that that is not worth trying for. It's not what I want. <coughs> so, uh, again, as in some of the previous readings, Yelumpur uses um, or equates this quality of awakened awareness with the, the deathless itself. And also in uh, Ajahn Chah's own teaching, he would say the same kind of thing. This, this quality of knowing, this, uh, this uh, pool rule, is not, uh, is not something that is born and dies. It's not coming and going. Um, and so that, um, that quality of uh, the deathless is, uh, you can also call the timeless, or uh, some, what, what they call the Pachupana Dhamma, the here and now Dhamma, the, the ever-present Dhamma. So that there's a the, that quality of knowing that is no and what it knows is the the births and deaths the, the beginning and ending of thoughts and feelings and, uh, perceptions and so and so on and so forth and that as long as the, the mind attaches itself to the 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 born and dying the moods arising and passing uh, happiness unhappiness uh, praise criticism gain loss uh, success and failure and so forth then it's born and it dies with those. When the mind is not attached to the born and the dying, then it sustains itself in that uh, that unborn, undying quality. It's its natural its natural uh, essence. Its its nature is timelessness. Akaliko dhamma is akaliko is timeless, and so that that is something that can be uh, investigated and developed moment by moment. Just as uh, Lumpur is saying here. This is not a condition you create through meditation practice. It's a natural state of being and sustains itself as you begin to trust in it. So just as uh, I often use the example of, of gravity, you don't create gravity, but you, you feel the effect of it. You don't, I didn't create light, but I, I feel the effects of it because of the eyes. I feel gravity because of the body and its senses. So similarly, uh, awareness is not something that is, that is, uh, is personally created, but it's... It's not generated through um, a particular activity. It's a natural quality, but the meditation is what is helping to unclutter that, or clarify that, or free that that uh, awareness from obscuration. So, any questions, reflections? Yes. Maybe if we can let the sangha speak first. You are a, a visitor, Nevin. Of course, everyone else will be even more shy than usual. But uh, these readings are mostly for the resident community. So that makes everyone even more quiet. Yes.
Very good. Yeah, we because we so we used to be create an idea about things, and then that uh, you know a sense masks the the actual function of them because the, the the attention is dwelling on the idea about it or the name of it or the story about it, and uh, and also we don't have to understand quote unquote how things work in order to be able to feel them and, uh, and use them. Like say gravity itself, I think. <coughs> one of those things that that um, physicists they kind of kind of know a bit about how it works and some of the rules that it follows, but they, what actually generates it and how it operates over such gigantic distances it's still very very mysterious. But we can experience the effects of it. You know, your ideas about it and the formulae for it might be sort of getting in the way of the fact that oh yeah feel the pull of the earth and so that that uh, but I also in that sense of of uh, trusting in awareness it's uh, one of the th- uh, as I was just saying looking at the results or when that when that is uh, followed or when that's when that is trusted or when that that is actualized that to uh, to really allow into the heart that sense of okay well this is the effect when when things are held in that way when they're looked at in that way this is how the, the the picture changes. This is how the world is is felt when that uh, when that attitude shifts. This is what it's like, and so then that the result of working in that way then speaks for itself. You don't have to again. You don't have to a concept to describe what it's like when the grasping stops. You don't have to oh the when the mind is free of grasping, then then coming up with a some words or ideas to. To, to name that or to to kind of specify that, but to to really know that in the heart, and it's one of the things that I often say about that is like the more wordless, the better, the less that the mind is talking about it, and the more it can really just know. Okay, when that has been let go of, it feels this way. Full stop. No commentary, no excitement, no don't reach the notebook. It's just it's this. And because the, the the mind can start creating a, a, a story about it or, or a name for it or talking about it. And in that moment, it's lost the, the real apprehension of that quality. That's been sort of um, 
to yeah. uh, uh, bury it in all of the, the thinking around it, and so that the uh, uh, the uh, it's a it's a strange thing, but often because I mean I'm a wordy guy, so I use a lot of words. Uh, and certainly, I, I have a lot of connection with the world of words. But in this respect, in terms of the practice, that's one area where that, the, the less words, the better. Where it's just that sense, particularly like if, um, say, you've you've done something that is is harmful or stupid. You, you said something that was really cruel, or you've you've uh, acted in a way that was really um, you know, really selfish or lazy, uh, really indulgent, and then. The, the thinking mind can want to jump in and, and say, I'm a terrible person because of this, 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 and I'll never do that again, or that was really awful, or, how, you know, how can I be forgiven? Or, and it, uh, it creates a whole lot of, of uh, verbiage around it. But if, uh, if it, the, the mind recognizes, okay, well, that was poorly said, that was, that, that was an unkind comment, or that was a, a greedy thing, to, a greedy impulse to follow. And now... Having followed that, here is the result. It feels like this. Full stop. And then to, to really let that be known, I find that, in, that that's the way Hiriotapa works most effectively. It's like that, that. Just let that, like, like fear, you know, it's, it's a pain. It's a, it's a psychological pain. It works by being painful. <laughs> and the, the, the attention can be deflected by sort of Okay, I'm never going to do that again. That was really awful. I'm a terrible person. I've got to go and apologize. So, a lot of that, even though it might be well intentioned, it can make things less effective than just ow, ow, and let the ow just be be fully known. And because the more that is really uh, and enabled to sink in, sort of get down to the bones, then. The more it will actually change the behavior, it'll it'll recognize it'll make it that much easier to 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 um, not follow that track in the future, and to and without creating self view around like I'm a terrible person or I shouldn't have done that, and because then even though it's recognizing some kind of wrongdoing or laziness or selfishness or greediness, that is accurate, but if if the mind creates self view around it, then it becomes more then that, that recognition becomes a more sort of cement for, for I and me and mine. Whereas the more wordless it is, then that, the more that that pain will, will be a training method. It's a, without building self-view around it. And so that it, it's, it's more effective just to let that be uh, a sort of un- Muted or the mind undistracted uh, from that as possible. Yes. Well, that's uh, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so that that kind of leads the, the the mind in a way when you if your mind is getting lost in thinking about something or or is, has been absorbed into some sort of 
feeling or you know some kind of self-recrimination or sadness or whatever, then you use that that kind of naming to to, to in a sense to recognize what's there and then leave it alone. And to oh, this is the um, uh, this is the uh, the feeling of regret having said something something really unkind to Venerable Nidaro feeling. That's what this is. So then there's that that helps to sort of lead the attention to that and then leave it alone. So it's kind of clarifying what's there. This is the recognizing I just said something really stupid or I was that was really indulgent. This is what this feeling is. So you're not doing that as a way of of, of, uh, of going numb, but you're kind of bring the attention to that, making it known as a feeling and then just let leaving it alone, letting it have its effect. So you can work with those things together. Okay, so let's see if I can get to the end of the talk. Test it out. See for yourself through your own intuitive intelligence. There is suffering, dukkha. And there is non-suffering. By just exploring the unsatisfactoriness, you can make a point of becoming aware of, say, waking up in the morning and feeling a sense of dreariness or even a dread. Maybe there is something in the day that you don't particularly want to face. Maybe there is a feeling of restlessness, of wanting something to do, of loneliness, of wanting somebody to talk to, of wanting some distraction. Things like this just ordinary in anybody's life. And the awareness allows us to observe this, to know this, like this. So, to observe this, to know it is like this, quote-unquote. The more I trust in awareness, the more my relationship to the conditions that arise in my mind change. Instead of being pulled into conditions or trying to suppress them, or get rid of them, I acknowledge them, recognize them. Don't make a problem out of them. That leads much more to a sense of being content and peaceful with life. I don't feel, oh, there's so much I have to do. We create problems for ourselves when we say, I've got an anger problem. I suffer from jealousy. I've got a lot of fear. I carry resentments. We assume from these identities we shouldn't have the feelings. We think, I shouldn't be an angry person. I've got to do something about it. But if we listen to it, rather than just believe it, do we find that that which is aware of anger is angry? Assuming you are really angry right now, really angry, and you're aware that there is anger, is the awareness angry? The anger is what you're feeling. It's like this. But your awareness, is that angry? That's the way I investigate that particular experience. And the more I investigate it, the more I see that awareness is not angry. Awareness is aware of anger, but is not itself anger. I trust in the awareness more and more. I rest in it rather than make a problem about feeling angry. If I take it personally, then I start thinking, a good monk shouldn't be like this. I should have loving kindness, metta for people. Then somebody does something that makes me really angry and I try to have metta for, for him. That's what I should do. I tell myself, I should forgive him. The point is, I know what I should do, but really, I'm very angry, and I have absolutely no matter for that person. 
I'd actually like to punch that person in the nose. But that which is aware of the anger, is that anger? Is that greed? Is that frightened or confused? As you question, just trust more and more in the awareness. This is an, is an intuitive practice. This is where you have to trust yourself. You're the one that has to do this. Nobody can do it for you. Don't be frightened of trusting yourself. Don't trust your opinions and views. Don't trust your views about Buddhism or Christianity or anything. I don't trust any of those things. I can still have viewpoints and opinions, but I don't trust this. I do, however, trust this awareness. As you keep developing this, it gets stronger through your life experiences. This is not just an airy-fairy kind of idealism. It's something that, as you grow older, gives you increasingly more strength in dealing with the problems of this realm, in living in a human body in society. This is the way it is. It isn't what it should be, quote-unquote, but it is just the way it is. Notice that. Various fleeting moments might have the sense that life is just as it should be, but you can't sustain that. One of the um, uh, the aspects of this that I find um, is uh, is helpful, along with this, um, say, naming of the experience that, that's there. Then, in terms of of um, framing what it is that the what is being done, what the practice is. Uh, so, there's a, a particular phrase that uh, Lumpur Cha used, which is that of being Dhamma. So he said, first of all, there's listening to Dhamma, hearing, you know, hearing Dhamma, understanding Dhamma, practicing Dhamma, realizing Dhamma. And then he would make a point, and then finally, the, 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 um, say the completion of that whole process is being Dhamma. So it's not like not, not having been Dhamma, then you become Dhamma, but recognizing that everything, uh, every aspect of the body and mind is part of the natural order. So being Dhamma, uh, is a, a way of reframing the sense of this mind, this body, and uh, the way of helping the, the the habits of personalizing, like, I am this man, I am this woman, I am old, I am young, I am tall, I am short, I have this nationality. But to take a phrase like being Dhamma and to, to consider uh, the, the f- experience of living, Feeling, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, through that that uh, different framework, the framework of, of being dhamma. Looking at this mind, so this this angry feeling uh, as a, an aspect of nature, or this jealous feeling as an aspect of nature, or this in, enthusiastic feeling, this excitement uh, as an aspect of nature, and to uh, to take that and to see again what, what the effect is when the, the mind is say, reframing its experience in that way. This, uh, the thought is Dhamma, that which is aware of the thought is Dhamma. The, the object that the thought is about is Dhamma. It's, it's, uh, everything is, is Dhamma, everything is an aspect of the, the natural order. So uh, what is the effect of 
of that reframing of experience and and that um, uh, uh, again is a, I find a very skillful means a very uh, helpful upaya for uh, say uh, acknowledging what's there that say the feeling of anger or jealousy or re- uh, regret sadness and to uh, to see well this is a, a, a part of nature rather than uh, something that is a, a, a mood to be believed in, or that I, I am angry, or I am sad, or um, and uh, so on and so forth, because the uh, the habit of, of uh, personalizing is incredibly strong. So this is just a, uh, another way of of naming it or framing the experience uh, in a in a different fashion. So as again as Lumpur says here, so that may, uh, when you wake up in the morning. And there's a feeling of dreariness or dread. Oh no, another day, another day at Amravati. <laughs> so, I, and I, I'm not a morning person. Um, I, I fully confess, by by nature, it's the, the first thirty years were the worst. <laughs> that is not a joke. That is not. So, those of you who are on year three or four, okay, buckle up. <laughs> Really, the first 30 years were the worst. After about year 30, something went, okay, I give up. <laughs> and so mornings are a lot easier now than they were for the first 30 years. But there was generally the way that my mind met the alarm clock was, oh. And um, so that uh, um, and when there is that feeling of dread, and oh, now I've got to be with those really those annoying people again. And, uh, and what's my job today? Oh, what's the routine today? Oh. And that uh, the mind easily buys into those and says, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I have got to be with those really irritating people again today. So, so what? You know, but then in, in this kind of a, a practice, it's recognizing, well, that feeling of, oh, is also part of nature. It's being felt here. It's being known here. But that that is a a, a feeling that uh, can be generated by the human mind, and then uh, the the words that the mind uses, whatever your language of choice would be, English or Thai or French or German or Serbo-Croat or whatever, Japanese, Korean, you know, whatever our, our language might be, that um, that uh, that memory, that use of language, is also these are part of, of the natural order. We don't have to uh, uh, frame everything in terms of me and my day and what I've got to deal with. And, and uh, <coughs> so that it requires a certain amount of, of stepping up and, and being uh, ready to apply the energy to, to see things differently and to, to work with, with a, a state rather than buying into it. Um, so along with, oh, this is the 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 uh, the mind groaning in the morning, um, and uh, to say, well, yeah, but groaning in the morning is also part of the way things are. It's, it's part of the natural order. This is uh, another aspect of being dhamma: is that the mind that, that is the mood that, that is uh, is here is part of the natural order. That which is aware of it is also part of the natural order. The the knowing is is dhamma also, and so that the uh, 
the mood might still be there, the lack of energy might still be there, but the, the whole the way that the mind is, is framing it can be uh, can be re rejigged, reshaped. Uh, also, um, one of the things that's uh, a very, very helpful piece of advice in terms of speaking, getting up in the morning is uh, Lumpur Sumedho said many times, don't let wisdom get anywhere near it. When your alarm clock goes off, don't allow wisdom anywhere near because wisdom will always save five more minutes. <laughs> <laughs> just just five minutes. Just, 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 um, don't want to kind of shock the system. Just don't allow wisdom anywhere near it. Just go. Leap out of bed with alacrity is the, the term of choice for many, many years. Leap out of bed with alacrity. Don't think, just go. So if you, if you think about it, wisdom will always say, just, just, just five more minutes. And then you're, you're toast, as they say. So any further questions, thoughts, reflections? Uh, yeah, the, well, it's a good question. The um, identifying with awareness would be uh, the something that's driven by the self-view or, or conceit that I am this awareness, or I, I am, uh, I am knowing, I am, I am awake. This awareness is me; it's mine. And so those feelings can arise within that. Uh, and that I am, I am aware, and also this awareness is is, is me, is my essence. Um, but that um, is a way uh, that the conceit or, or self view is is sort of is forming within that, and that uh, the trusting awareness is uh, in a way that is a relaxation of um, of that habit of grasping. And that the, um, in particular, say what's not trusting awareness is that, in the sense of, I've got to get this and I don't want that. That it's uh, that um, I've got to change this in order to make it good, uh, sometime in the future, and that it's the mind that's getting born into the the content of the field of experience. That's what's not trusting the awareness, and so the trusting the awareness is like, don't have to to. Make it right for me. Let go. Don't don't, don't grasp. It. And then it's also seeing how um, which Lumpur doesn't um, spell out so much, but the effect of trusting the awareness. It's not like a disconnect. It's not a, a just a sort of passivity or or a um, uh, a kind of what they call an like abdicating responsibility. It's always like a switching off. I'm just observing, I'm just being aware of the way things are. But as I say over and over, the, the ability of your life and your whole system to respond to the situation is part of the way things are. So trusting in the awareness, it can sound kind of passive. Trusting in awareness is, you can be aware of then taking action. Like trusting in awareness of the groan in the morning doesn't mean to say that, I'll just be aware of the groan as I lie here. It's like, just be aware of the groan as you leap out of bed with alacrity. You see what I mean? So that it's a, um, there's a readiness to, uh, so that, that um, 
trusting in awareness is in a way freeing the system up to respond. So it's like, uh, I often use the expression, so this is a, a self-adjusting universe. And the, the more that the awareness is unobstructed by self-view, by, by conceit, then the more the whole system can adapt in, in an attuned way to the time, the place, the situation. Yes. Really? It should be there. Asmi uh, literally means I am. It's from the verb hoti, to be. Uh, uh, so um, the uh, the uh, mana aspect of the word is conceit. So uh, asmi mana literally means the conceit of I am. Uh, <coughs> and so ditti mana uh, is a conceited view. So that that generally means uh, an opinion that is taken to be absolutely true. But it generally is uh, uh, the the uh, the, cons- the the conceit side of it, the mana side of it is it's my opinion. You know, I know that. I believe that. I'm right. So, uh, in a way, ditti mana is a bit broader. So conceited views or opinion. So ditti is a view. Mana is a conceited view. Um, Asmi mana is is a bit much, a bit more specific, is in, in sort of a very particular quality. So it's that the I feeling that is not even associated with the body or the personality. So Inus, minus, minus. So that the in the ten fetters, the ten sangyojanas, then. The very first one is self view, sakaya ditti. That's kind of number one. That's the the, the, so the first one. Asmimana is number eight. So that even if self view has been let go of, that the I am the body, I am the personality, the way that the, the mind identifies with the five khandas I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm old, I'm young, I'm tall, I'm short, I'm English, I'm uh, <coughs> American or whatever, those are. Uh, uh, the aspects of, of self-view of, uh, of uh, Sakaya Diti might have been seen through completely and let go of. And then, but Asmimana is still hovering around. It's still so that, that when the, even when the mind is, say, quite concentrated, quite, you know, quite focused, say it's a, it's a very um, it's a sharp attention on a meditation object, the mind is very still, very peaceful. Uh, Asmi mana would be the uh, that um, attitude of mind. This is my mind. My, I'm practicing. My practice is going well. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm enjoying this, even if it's not spelled out in words. But to be that that I am. This is mine. I'm at peace. Yeah, I, this, uh, I, I'm I've, I'm experiencing a lot of. of joy and this is my insight 
all those those feelings of, of ownership or of identity um, that are not particularly tied up with with the the um, the kind of coarse aspects of identification. So in that in that kind of a moment, the mind is, is aware of a say a bright state. It's not there's no sense of being a woman or being a man, being old, being young, being tall or short or whatever. It's just there's a knowing, there's a the attention. There's a this is my practice or my meditation is 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 like this or I'm experiencing this moment. This is my mind, and that that. Uh, it can all be happening sort of behind the curtain, as it were, and it has it has its influence. Um, there's a particularly um, uh, uh, clear way uh, that the the Buddha speaks about this in, in a sutta called the Panchataya Sutta, the five and the three, which is sutta number a hundred and two, I think, in the Majjhima. <coughs> and he says so someone might be meditating. <coughs> And that their mind is very, very quiet, very peaceful, very bright. And then the, the thought arises, I am at peace, I am without clinging, I have realized Nibbana. But the very way that the mind phrases the, that experience indicates the clinging that is still there. I am at peace, I am without clinging, I have realized Nibbana. So that all that I am, I have, is that will be... In the in the realm of Asmi Mana, the, the conceit of I am, so that the, uh, the 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 teachings on Anatta are really focused not just at Sakaya Divya, the coarse aspects of identification, but also at that much more subtle uh, quality of Inus and Minus and Minus. Even when it doesn't have a particularly distinct object, it's just that feeling of the me, the watcher. Me, the me, the one who knows. Uh, even if that's separate from all the ordinary kind of personal stories, etc. Absolutely, yeah. I'm not sure. The, there's uh, the one the uh, um, the the one of the, of the suttas that talks about it most effectively is the, the Kemaka Sutta, where this uh, monk who's aged and and sick is. Uh, his friends hear that he's dying, and they they send a message to him saying, "You know, uh, we we hear that you're very ill. Have you completed the practice? Have you realized arahantship?" And he sends a message back saying, "Or oh, uh, not yet." And then they, they send a message back saying, "Well, in what way have you not finished the practice?" And he goes back and forth and back and forth. And eventually, he goes, oh, "These these guys are insufferable." So he gets off his sick bed and he goes to to go and see them and have a conversation. And then he comes up with this really interesting uh, analogy. He said it's like a a flower. 
So there's, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the five khandhas are not self. There's no attachment to the, to the body and the, the senses and such like. But the, this feeling of I am still lingers around. Like with a flower, you can smell the fragrance of the flower, but you can't tell whether the fragrance comes from the petals or the pollen or the stamens or the sepals or the, where it's coming from. But you can, you can still smell the, the, the flower, but you can't tell where that smell, the fragrance comes from. Um, and uh, so, so as he was giving that, that Dhamma talk to his friends, not only did he realize Arahantship, but some of his, his friends did as well. So he is famous for being the, uh, the only person in the Pali Canon who became enlightened, hearing his own Dhamma talk. <laughs> so if you're talking to yourself in your kitchen, <laughs> it can be a profitable thing. <laughs> and on that note, I think we'll call it to a close end. Okay.